This is verse 10, Titus chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's Word, so let's pause in prayer and ask His help, and then begin the work of trying to understand and obey God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for the truth of these songs we've been able to sing. We thank you for Father's Day. And Lord, we thank you for fathers that look like you because you saved them by grace. Lord, we uh, ask your blessing on this portion of Scripture that we might be faithful to it. And Lord, may we learn something and may it stick in our heads and may we rely on it at some point when you choose to need us for something that would require this information. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I'd, I'd like to do something that I've, I've done in the past a time or two, especially when you get to uh, passages of Scripture that seem a little less like what you expected when you opened your Bibles. Uh, this is a paraphrase. It's not a translation of Scripture. It's just another fellow who wrote this like some others. Um, maybe you're familiar with the message. That's, that's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But it's put in other words. Uh, a lot of these men wrote these to help their children read their Bibles. But this is the same portion, but from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. He says, There are many, especially among the Jews, who will not recognize authority, who talk nonsense, and yet in so doing have managed to deceive men's minds. They must be silenced, for they upset faith of whole households, teaching what they have no business to teach for the sake of what they can get. One of them, yes, one of their prophets has said, Men of Crete are always liars, evil and beastly, lazily and greedy. There is truth in this testimonial of theirs. Don't hesitate to reprimand them sharply, for you want them to be sound and healthy Christians with a proper contempt for Jewish fairy tales and orders issued by men who have forsaken the path of truth. Everything is wholesome to those who themselves are wholesome, but nothing is wholesome to those who themselves are unwholesome and who have no faith in God. Their very minds and consciences are diseased. They profess to know God, but their actual behavior denies their profession, for they are obviously vile and rebellious, and when it comes to doing any real good, they're frauds. That was helpful to me, and uh, having read it twice, one uh, from Scripture and one in other words, I thought I'd start out by asking you, have any of you ever been had or conned or ripped off, or as my great-grandmother used to call it, hoodooed? Um, 
it's not fun. And usually we stay chapped quite, quite a while after something like that because it involves deception. And especially if we didn't see it coming or coming from someone that we didn't expect to act that way. That's what Paul is talking about to Titus, but it has to do with preachers and those who would profess to know God and teach his word but are not doing that at all. Um, Paul has just described some of these preachers as behaving badly. Last week was the requirements for leadership in the church. This week is an example of no such thing. And he's thrown some heavy punches. So another thing I like to do from time to time when we get to a spot where we've accurately assessed that this is probably not talking specifically to me. I'm, I'm not one of the Cretans who's an evil beast or a lazy glutton. I might not teach uh, from a pulpit or even a classroom. So rather than just let any such thinking uh, exist and those that think it off the hook, it's time for a depravity check. You remember those? Where we just kind of say, well, these are messed up people, so let's make sure that we understand that we're all messed up. Maybe not in the same way, but we all need the cross the same way. Jesus died for us because we're sinners, they're sinners. Um, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah seventeen nine. That's your standard equipment as a sinful individual. That's why you need saving. It was John uh, chapter 8 where Jesus describes uh, speaking to a group of people, you're of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That, that's about it. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That was, that was the first lie we read of. So I think we could, we could set this in the context of, of uh, a contrast. Last week, this is what you're looking for. This week, not at all. So you've got truth against a lie. That's where we start with our Bibles. It's as basic as uh, children's Sunday school classes. God tells the truth. The devil tells a lie. It, it doesn't get any more complicated than that. We can boil it all down. And because of our depravity, the default within us is a lie. Normal human beings, apart from God's grace, will lie to deceive and advantage themselves and disadvantage others. That's how the world works. We'd like to think... That this is only for those headed straight for hell. People in church don't have to listen to this stuff. I wish it were that way. It's not that way. Uh, this hits us all square between the eyes. We might not be among the group that Paul is speaking about here. But we better know that each of us have the capacity for it. And we better take the warning because he speaks truth and we're reading our Bibles. Uh, another way to put it, which is always a good a good foundation to build from. We as Christians are not better than anyone else. We just have better news. What news do we have? Jesus saves sinners. That's us. He can save you too. We're not any better. We just have better news. All right, there's your depravity check. So let's get into this text here. Most of the church's troubles are not from the outside, but the inside. Last week, most of the church's troubles can be traced back to bad leadership. Well, the bad leadership's on the inside. He's going to take it a step further here. And if you look back at verse 10, 
For there are many who are insubordinate, that's one, empty talkers, that's two, and deceivers, that's three ways to describe, especially these from the circumcision party. I think I'll leave it right where Paul did. He didn't elaborate on that, did he? He didn't come to church to hear about what the circumcision party was all about. We covered that in Acts. So we'll leave that for now and look at these three words. The word for there justifies the requirement that the elder must be able to explain his Bible and defend the truth from lies that are not like the Bible. Uh, That was the previous verse. We ended with that last week. For he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He was taught it trustworthy. He should teach it trustworthy so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, correct doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. So let's look at uh, all three of these. These are three marks of a, a bad teacher, false teacher, whatever you want to call them. First of all, they're insubordinate. That's kind of an official term. You might see that somewhere in your permanent record, especially if uh, you're military or law enforcement or something. They just don't follow orders. Rebellious, unruly. It means unaccountable would be a good way. They don't see themselves as needing to be under the oversight of, of anyone else. Um, beware of spiritual leaders who publicly call themselves pastor or bishop or prophet or apostle or God's anointed or whatever, but have no one empowered to strip them of their title should they fail to honor it with godly behavior. Every good church has a good mechanism for making sure that their teachers practice what they preach. Uh, I remember listening to a podcast not long ago. It had been out for a good long while, and I hadn't listened to it, but it had to do with an explosion of a big church. And then some others speaking into this, one having been a, or, or was a Presbyterian who said this would have never happened in the Presbyterian church because we've got so many mechanisms to make sure that these people stay on point. In fact, uh, sometimes it's restrictive. But then there are other denominations where you can... Become a Christian one day, teach Sunday school class the next day, start your church the week after that, and be running 2,000 without an education. Uh, somewhere in there, we need some, you know, those little things that you put up at the bowling alley when you're learning, you know, to keep your ball out of the gutter. We need to keep these men out of the, the gutter. There's got to be accountability. And for the most part, Paul is restricting that to the authority of Scripture. They're not subordinate to the truth of of God's Word. They're insubordinate. Um, They're off on their own. They're a law unto themselves. That's the first one. The second one is empty talkers. It indicates the meaninglessness of their speech. I like this, so I, I wrote it down. You can always spot those who do not teach the truth by the way they can say absolutely nothing beautifully. <laughs> kind of like our politicians, you know, that they, 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 they talk, that's their job, but they've got to figure out a way to say wonderful stuff, make everybody happy, aggravate no one, and get everyone's vote. That's a tough job, but if you're a con, it comes natural to you. you, you this is just some people that could sell anything. You, you, you might know one. Watch them. Um, I'll leave that. This is the filter working in real time. Um, Let's see here. 
what we should do, what makes or should make a, a, a congregant, a church member, feel safe is when the fellow stands up and says, turn in your Bibles too. This is what we'll be looking at. This is what gets taught. This is what we'll be faithful to. Uh, rather than just, you know, starting somewhere, read a verse, leave it like an abandoned baby on someone else's porch, and then talk about whatever you want to for the next 45 minutes. That's not what we're looking for. Um, I've never found it more simplistic to just say, hey, how do we understand this passage, verse 10 through 16? And then second of all, once we've understood it, how do we obey it? And then go home. And then come back and do it next week. It, it's, it's simple. So what he's talking about, Paul here, are empty talkers. It, it amounts to empty promises. Uh, the assumption is if this man or ministry claims to represent God, but then those clouds never deliver rain. He carries on like he can make it rain, but he doesn't let the truth out of the Bible. It, it never rains. Uh, it might be an affirmation here, a how-to there, five steps to freedom. It amounts to little. If you've been here for the almost five years, you've seen me up here. You've never got a five steps to being a better dad on Father's Day because I've never found five steps to being a better dad in the Scriptures. Now, we could talk about this passage from Titus, and I'm pretty sure the warning is valid for you being a better dad. What will make a better preacher should make a better dad. Uh, we'll get all that osmotically right out of the Scriptures. Understand Romans, be a better dad. It's not complicated. But to try to make it clever or winsome or, or slick, it, it's empty at the end of the sermon and a fraud at the end of one's career. And then there's deceivers who come through the back door and bit by bit either take away from the Scriptures or add to the Scriptures. That's usually the way they, they twist it. Um, remembering most churches' troubles are not from the outside, but the inside. You know, we could talk about uh, cults or close-to-Christianity stuff. Uh, I, I think the most insidious is the prosperity gospel. Look up their, their, their you know, uh, doctrinal statement. It's probably great. But all they talk about is basically God exists to make your life happy. He's the galactic maid to fluff your pillows whenever you call. That's what prayer's for. It's not that way. Uh, frequently, he calls us to suffer for his sake. He suffered. He didn't have fluffy pillows. He never called in a favor. Lord, it's hot today in the Galilee. Can you knock it down five degrees? That's not what he did. These are deceivers. And uh, what they're doing is wrong. So three marks of a false teacher. First, their teaching isn't biblical. That's what we just looked at. We just looked in verse 11. Their, their, their motives aren't pure. Look at this again. Um, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So the result of the shameful gain teaching is upsetting whole families. 
You ever know a family where uh, it's a good church family, they, they know their Bibles, they know good preaching, but they've got somebody in the family who likes to watch the stuff on TV and they bought in and, whoo, don't bring that up because it, it, it upsets the family, right? You've got someone who's being defrauded. Um, so it, it's, it's not surprising. But then you see the motive for the, the insubordination, empty talking, and deception. Uh, it's for shameful gain. The motives aren't pure. And maybe it's not money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's just they love the sound of their own voice. They want so many thumbs up and uh, you know social media exposure. They're building their platform. It's a good way to put it. Maybe it's just they want the money. The, used to be before social media and uh, investigative journalism and all these channels you can get on TV and uh, somewhere, I don't know when it happened, but somebody declared it open season on preachers behaving badly. YouTube's full of good stuff if you really want to see what this looks like. Paul, uh, this Cretan guy talking about, you know, these beasts that are, you know, greedy and whatever. All you got to do is do some searching and you can find a lot of stuff that'll make your, your jaw drop. And why? Because they're serving themselves. I mean, old-fashioned stuff, there used to be a preacher by the mail. My dad used to talk about this. One, once upon a time, he got uh, a mailing and inside the envelope was a little uh, piece of handkerchief, it looked like. It was an anointed prayer cloth. And the description in the letter said that he was supposed to put that in his wallet. And if he put it in his wallet and he prayed, and when he prayed, there was this special shower cap with a handprint on it. And if you put on the shower cap, this guy had touched where the handprint was, and it, he was you know, blessing my father, laying hands on his head, and then put the prayer cloth in his uh, wallet. It said that if you do this, that God will bring you financial blessing. And when he does, we want you to send some of that back to us. So my dad usually would just throw this stuff away. He said, but this one was too good. He said, so I did write the preacher by the mail back. And I told him, I've read your letter. I'm flabbergasted that you would think of me. But I've, I've had this, this, this burden that, that really it sounds like you need this more than me. So I'm going to send back this prayer cloth and you put it in your wallet and then maybe the Lord will do for you what you say he'll do for me but you can keep it all it's kind of funny that's the way it used to be now it, it, it's a lot different but there are such things as rip off pastors and later we're going to read where Paul's talking about some women that have been you know uh duped by this and they're giving their fixed income to something they want to believe in because this guy is lying to them uh, it's, it's not good and the third point here mark of a false teacher is their behavior is despicable this is where he uses that quote from a Cretan himself now the setting is the island of Crete Titus has been left there to set everything into order to appoint elders in every town it's a rough spot uh, there's, there's a lot of retired Roman military that's part of this island, as was many of the other islands in the Mediterranean. 
But in verse 12, one of the Cretans, so Paul is quoting a Cretan, a prophet of their own. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul's using a cultural joke. This is satirical. But it's written by an insider in order to make his own point, Paul's point, which is, is brilliant, wouldn't you say? If you ever want to... Comedians do this. Rather than making fun of someone directly, which could get them in trouble, they'll say something someone of that group said. So the heat's on that person, but they get the leverage of the argument. Make, like, you know, if, if, if you're an immigrant to the Americas, um, then you can say stuff about where you came from that you wouldn't let other people say stuff, right? i me just put it this way. You can make fun of your brother and sister, but nobody else is going to make fun of your brother and sister the same way to a point, right? might be a pile on for a little while, and then you say, now, come on. It's a little too far. Well, Paul's raising this. They said it about themselves, and then he puts his stamp on it, where he says it's, it's true. Quotation establishes the picture without exposing Paul to the charge of being anti-Cretan. This was added to carry the point that they must be silenced. And the original world word there means uh, muzzled. That's the, the Greek word, silenced. I live in Ballantyne subdivision. Walking dogs is like a, an hourly thing. You see dogs walked all the time. I saw one with a muzzle on it. I hadn't seen that in a long time. I don't know what it meant. I wanted to ask. So uh, is this like court-appointed muzzle or, 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 or you know, three-strikes policy? What, what do he do? Is it all these tasty bunnies jumping around everywhere? <laughs> Valentine's full of mutant-sized bunnies, too, and birds. Anyway... Um, that sounds like stuff you just wouldn't say these days, would it? Muzzle someone? Shut them up? We live in a world where you feel like you can't say anything about anybody now uh, without getting into severe trouble. We don't have much of a, of a stomach for it. Generations past, you could. I mean, it's Father's Day, right? Used to be, my dad would say, uh, that if you were cutting up, in town or at your friend's house, you know, your friend's dad could whip you just as much as your own dad could. And then they'd call him up and tell him that it happened. You'd get a whipping when you got home. And if it happened at school, you might get a whipping from the teacher and then a whipping from the dad who drove you home and then a whipping from your own dad. And everybody thought that wasn't weird. It was the way you do it. We all take care of each other together. Now you can't say anything about anyone. So when we get to verse 13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now, that sounds like you need to add some uh, volume, maybe some, uh, I don't know, a dressing down. Um, I don't think so. I think the word sharply is kind of like deciding, okay, you're going to have surgery. Would you rather want the scalpel sharp or dull? Um, you're going to use an instrument, a tool for something. You, you want the blade sharp or dull? He's saying accurately and concisely and especially clearly show them the error from the book as to their ways. You know, we get to use the Bible. Kind of like Paul used Cretans. 
we can say, Paul the Apostle said this. So if, if, if it gets hot in the sanctuary, don't blame the messenger. Blame the scriptures. If the shoe fits, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Don't distract him by blaming the preacher. Note the reason for the sharp rebuke. They may be sound in faith if you do that. Their faith could be healthy instead of unhealthy. Same as the way we correct children. You remember your mom used to say, if you keep making that face, it'll stick that way? Keep acting that way, it may stick that way. So we correct the children. They're children. They're not born with all the wisdom and experience that they need. Parents say, well, I don't have any of it either. Yeah, but you've been down that road and you know where the bumps are and you know if you uh, go around this curve too fast, it's going to hurt really bad. So you can tell them. Plus, you've got this thing called a Bible, which is absolute gold as far as parenting goes. So, verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. What he's saying here, that's kind of off the heels of, of this verse about rebuking and these Jewish fairy tales and commands of people rather than commands of God. You remember when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, why do you not, you disciples don't keep the traditions of men? And Jesus is like, well, why do you break the commandments of God? Bam, that's powerful. You're talking about what people say and you don't care anything about what God says. He's saying here, once a person gets into this situation where they're a law unto themselves, everything's kind of messed up in their, in their head. Their whole worldview is skewed, and they run their life through the, that calculator, and it's always going to have uh, wrong answers. If it's recalibrated, if they're pure, then the answers come out pure. But, but if, if, it's, if it's off, it's off. All right, we've got one more verse, but I think we can uh, switch over in. What do we make out of all of this? We'll save that last verse to the end. That's kind of his summary or conclusion. Um, Paul has gone to great lengths in chapter 1 to draw a clear line between those who are qualified to lead and those who are not. There's no mistaking that, and, and he's been very clear. Leadership matters. The church will never grow beyond the level of its leadership. That's a scary thought. Um, and if the leadership is wrong, it's that church who's responsible to change that. But that's not all that Paul is doing here. He's also drawing a clear line between those who trust in God and those who trust in themselves. That, that seems to be the difference between the faithful and the unfaithful. And we started out by talking about truth versus a lie. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's what we start out with, children's church. And that's where the lies came from. That, that's the devil. Uh, that, that's the snake in the garden. It, it's just an option. Hey, I know he said you'll die. You won't die. There's a lot of stuff that he knows that he's not telling you. And you really want to know that stuff, don't you? Nothing wrong with this. I mean, he made it. Eat it. It sounds good. And we have a propensity to believing it. Believing our own heart. Remember the depravity check. Your heart is sinful. It'll lie to you. Because it's your heart, you'll be inclined to believe it. We, who wouldn't want to be the smart man in the room or the smart woman in the garden? 
That was Eve. And these teachers, they claim to be the smart guys. Hey, I know all he does is take those old parchments out and says the same stuff every Sunday. We got better stuff than that. And if you'll do these, if you listen to me, I can help you out. That's a dead giveaway. Should be. Who wouldn't want to have everything all worked out? Who wouldn't want to look like everything's all put together? Who wouldn't want to be self-dependent? But that's not how the Bible describes our situation. Now, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's go to, not the end, but read part of chapter 3. Because this will be great when we get there. This is the way Paul describes it. And I know no better place in Scripture to, to be as frank. For we ourselves were once, so that's past tense, that's been changed. But what, how did we used to look before Jesus saved our souls? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I'd say that is American culture right here and now. And we've got, we don't have enough psychiatrists. We don't have enough pills. We don't have enough self-help books. We don't have enough room uh, to get away from one another. Uh, just put Americans in their little uh, metal capsules on the highway driving to get whatever they think they've got to get done and watch how they treat one another. Isn't it crazy? When, when you used to have to walk on a path you know, and talk and look people in the eye, it wasn't like road rage now is it I mean uh, I've gotten told I'm number one so many times since we moved to this town I, maybe it's my country driving I don't know but uh, that's us that is us various passions and pleasures you kidding me led astray slaves foolish passing our days in malice envy that's how the, the economy works Make us envy of each other. We'll buy stuff that we don't have money for to impress people we don't even like. But when the godly, or good, goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that'd be Jesus Christ, he saved us. From what? All that mess. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, because we deserved it. But according to his own mercy, that's him not giving us what we deserve, which would be destroyed... By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, that's giving us something we don't deserve, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's good stuff. He's got our number. Uh, because of the goodness and loving kindness, this is the way we were, not the way we have to be, not the way we are saved by grace. Verse 16, they, these are the bad guys, profess to know God, all that stuff there, but they deny him by his works. It's not this is the way we were. It's the way they are. Something's wrong. This doesn't compute. Jesus was supposed to save you from that stuff. Well, it, 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 it didn't take, I suppose would be a way to put it. We haven't gotten there yet. But Paul is introducing a concept we'll see in chapter 2 where he will stress believing is behaving. Not if you believe you'll be good. Not that type of behaving. Behaving is just your belief will characterize your behavior. If you're really saved and you know it, you'll look like it. 
You'll act like it. You'll talk like it. You're not perfect. You'll make mistakes. But there'll be something different. Believing is behaving. Genuine belief in the truth of God produces a life of godly behavior. On the other side, the absence of good deeds is cause for suspicion. Um, This doesn't add up. So is the Bible a resource for advice and teaching? Use it as you see fit. Leverage it however you want to, and maybe you'll be a successful American uh, guru preacher. Or is it the source of life and obedience? Is it a story where in the first ten words the parameters are set? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth means he's in charge. You're his creation. Then you find out how things went wrong in chapter 3. Then you find out through chapters and books and chapters that God has decided to help us anyway instead of just destroying us. And then he sends his son. And his son who's perfect is going to die on a cross. And the offer is that all those sins you've committed against his father can be placed on his son's back. And he'll die on a cross, a very cruel death, and be buried in a tomb. But that transaction will work for your payment of sins. That's the curse of death applied on your account, but to another individual. You sinned, he pays. But that's not all of it. On the other side, you get his certificate of commendation in exchange for your F on your report card. You get his righteousness. He gets to be with his father. You don't. You're a sinner. He's not. But because he paid for your sin, he'll give you his key card to the gates of glory. Basically, it almost doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it sounds so absurd. But that's what we just read about in chapter 3. If that is true, if this isn't a fairy tale, God really made it all, and then he really saved those who believe and trust him in faith. There's no other term to describe it but game changer, life changer. If you believe it, it has to change everything. You can't act like a jerk all day, every day, if you believe Jesus died to save you of jerkdom. Right? He didn't die to keep you acting that way. He died to redeem you, to change you, to make you that dad that you're not ashamed to call yourself. Right? We've got to have help. By about the time you get middle-aged, you realize, I'm a permanent mess. I'm not going to fix me. I'm stuck with me. The only thing that will fix me is Jesus and his glory. And all that will drop off when I get to heaven. So why don't I start acting like I've got something good going for me, at least in the next life. I can be charitable. I can be kind. I can say I'm sorry. I can do a lot of things because Jesus has saved my sorry soul. That would be changed. That would be be Christ-like. Not that I'm sorry part. But looking like someone who knows the difference between the truth and a lie and knows the difference between perpetuating lies and perpetuating the truth. Believing is behaving. And that by the book. And remember, here's how we'll sign off. Why do we go through the process of, of rehearsing a, a rebuke? There's things we can do that deserve a rebuke. Um, so we might be sound in faith. Healthy. 
um, some of you, I was fixing to say, pay a lot of money. No, your insurance pays a lot of money that you pay to rebuke you for the way you treat your body, right? Can't be doing this anymore. It's not healthy. You need a ministry, not just from a pulpit or a Sunday school teacher, but a true friend, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ who will say, you know what? Might not have been what you said, but the way you said that was bad, and I think you ought to fix that. And I'll go with you if you want me to. And I'm going to ask you if you did it or not. That would be a sound rebuke so that you can be healthy in your faith. Or, you know what? I heard your teaching the other day. Maybe you got a hold of a, you know, a, a commentary that was past its expiration date. It went bad because that wasn't right. Let me show you what's right. And it's sound doctrine you're looking for, and the rebuke is necessary. So there's your uh, depravity check. There's your uh, other side of the coin for every good leader. There's a, there's a scoundrel. And uh, a little Father's Day mixed in there to boot. I think it's time to pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday, another time in your word, another examination under the sound of your word. May, may we seek to understand and may we seek to obey these words. And Lord, would you hold us accountable through each other? And Lord, would you remind us of the way we were? And if we're not anymore, that's not because we pulled ourselves up or we turned over a new leaf or we read a self-help book or wrote a self-help book. It's because of the grace and mercy of the goodness of God when he appeared and saved us. We we ask your blessing on the rest of the series that it will teach us, especially over the next few weeks as we look at chapter 2. And you tell us how to help each other the way you designed us to help each other. Lord, we thank you for another Sunday. And we ask your blessing on, on gatherings and, and, and lunches and whatever we do from here. That you would be pleased in what we say and do. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.